at Living Hope Church, our church, we're doing a Christmas series on the mission of Christmas. The mission that God has in mind for Christmas. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7 gives us this wonderful birth announcement from the Lord. A birth announcement is exciting news. When you hear from your kids, your grandkids, somebody's sharing the anticipation. Life is coming. Now we just have to wait nine months or so many months before we get to see and hold it. But just the thought that the birth is coming. And we're going to see God's birth announcement in Isaiah 7. I think one of the clearest evidences of the inspiration of Scripture is fulfilled prophecy. Many, many times in the Bible, God predicts something, it comes true. History verifies what God says. And I'm not sure how anybody can deny the authority of Scripture when you see this dozens, yea, hundreds of times in Scripture. Isaiah has 22 Messianic prophecies, give or take, depending on how you count them, uh, most of which have been fulfilled. Some will yet be fulfilled in the second coming. But we're going to look at two of the most familiar uh, prophecies concerning Messiah and his birth. Isaiah 7 will start us off. To give you a little background, as you look at the beginning of the chapter, Isaiah 7 tells us that Judah is under the reign of King Ahaz. He was a no-good king. He was ungodly. He was an unbeliever. He allowed uh, idolatry and immorality in the land. Not a good guy. Judah and Ahaz were now under double trouble. According to verse 1, the king of Israel, the northern tribe, Pekah, had made an agreement with Rezin, the king of Syria, the longtime Gentile enemy, Syria, still in the news today. Those two nations collaborated and were making a plan to swoop down, invade Judah, conquer Jerusalem, the capital, plunder and control the land, and set up their own puppet king. And it looked like trouble for Judah. Matter of fact, the end of verse 2 says, The heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. There was fear and panic among the populace. And God in his goodness and grace, isn't this like God, doesn't have to do this, but he sends the prophet Isaiah with a message of comfort and hope. Ahaz didn't deserve another chance, but God's giving him another chance. The nation of Judah did not deserve a second opportunity or third, fourth, but God is again graciously giving them an opportunity. And the prophet's message to them is, fear not, be still. God has control of this. And those two bullies to the north that you fear, you don't need to fear. God's going to take care of them. And then, to show grace upon grace, the prophet says to Ahaz in verse 10, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Go ahead, Ahaz, ask a sign. That is something that would authenticate the message of God. An event, a person, a work that would confirm to you what God has already said. That's what a sign is. Now, we don't need signs anymore. We don't need to seek signs. It's really a sign of no faith or little faith. Jesus said to the Pharisees of his day, a, a sinful generation seeks signs. You have me. 
You have my word and my works. Believe me for who I am. But God said, and if God's offering it, you don't want to say no. God said, go ahead, Ahaz, ask a sign. I want you to know me. I want you to believe in me. And Ahaz replies in verse number 12, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. At first reading, that sounds kind of pious. Like he's such a strong believer. No, I don't need a sign, Lord. But that can't be what he means because the next verse, the Lord rebukes him and says, how long are you going to mess with me? How long do I have to put up with you? you I am weary with you and your persistent unbelief. He just does, He's just saying to the Lord, no thanks, Lord, I'm not interested. I, I'm not so sure I really want to hear what you have to say anyway. So the Lord says, okay, if you won't ask the sign, I'll choose it for you. And now we get to our text in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And there is the sign, a divine sign for Ahaz. The sign is this, a young woman, a, a virgin, an unmarried young woman, will conceive, will have a child, I'll tell you his gender, he's going to be a boy, They'll call him either a nickname or just a, maybe his birth name, but more likely just a slogan as a, a nickname. They'll call him Emmanuel, and that, just by calling his name, will remind everybody of God's ever-presence, because Emmanuel means God with us. And then he'll grow up. Um, by the time he knows how to choose good from evil, and what would you say, how old does that mean? Maybe two? Three at the most, a two-year-old can pretty much know what they're supposed to be doing and when they're in trouble. But before he gets to that age, these two no-good bullies are going to be gone. You don't have to fear. So this is the sign to you, Ahaz. So Ahaz, as he processes that, would be thinking, okay, if, if, if I believe what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, that means... Uh, a young woman, a virgin around here, maybe he had one in mind, a daughter or somebody in the court. Uh, she'll have to get married, he's thinking, if she's going to conceive. So she'll find a husband, or a husband will find her, get married. Probably soon after, she'll conceive. Nine months later, she'll birth a son. They give him the name Emmanuel. Then the little boy will grow up for another you know, two years. And at that point then, Israel and Syria will be gone. They won't be a threat. Hmm, okay, we'll see if that happens in two or three years. So that's the sign to Ahaz. Now, history tells us that two years later, in the year 732, Israel and Syria were removed from the scene, from the threat. They were gone. In two years, just as God had said. Two years later, Ahaz, watching this all unfold, could have and should have known God's word is true. He's a trustworthy God. I should believe him. 
I should bow the knee to him and accept him as the sovereign God, the Lord of my life, and of this nation. Uh, history shows that that didn't happen. Ahaz was not convinced by the sign. I don't think anybody is convinced by the sign. Signs and miracles do not produce faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And the spirit produces faith in the heart when the gospel and the word of God goes forth. So there is this divine sign from heaven to an unbelieving king named Ahaz. But friends, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Hold your spot here. And we know from the Holy Spirit's interpretation in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, that that divine sign was not just for Ahaz. It was for him in his historical context, but that divine sign is for every human being, past, present, future. Every human being who wants to know, is, is the God of the Bible real? Is the Bible really God's word? And is the God of the Bible the living and true God? Well, here's what the Holy Spirit says in Matthew 1, the opening chapter of the New Testament, beginning at verse 21. This is the angel speaking to Joseph, telling him the birth announcement of uh, his engaged virgin fiance, Mary. Verse 21, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. More than Ahaz was imagining, more than Ahaz could have ever uh, conceived, no pun intended, was the fact that it would be a literal virgin. A woman who never knew a man will be the one who conceives. And above that, she will remain a virgin until she gives birth to this son. He will be a virgin-born child. And more than that, the name Emmanuel will not just be a tag-along, not just uh, some nickname. It will actually be true of the character of that virgin-born son. He will be God in human flesh. He will be literally, truly, personally, God incarnate. For 33 years, God was among us, bodily present. There's a sign. A sign for all who want to know, is the Bible really true? Well, you tell me something that said 740 years before Jesus is born, about his birth, is fulfilled exactly, specifically, when he is born in a miraculous way. And God proves, though he doesn't have to, he proves himself faithful, trustworthy. Now the question I think we should ask is, what, what on earth, literally, what on earth did God want, would God want to be with us? Why? What was his intention or purpose? Well, he had a mission in mind. So let's go back to Isaiah. Isaiah told Ahaz, this sign will show you that you don't have to worry about these two bullies. God will take care of them. And God did. How did God take care of those two bullies? Well, if you drop down to chapter 7, at the end of verse number 17, you'll see God's chosen instrument to deliver Israel from that crisis was the uh, king of Assyria. A bigger bully came to take care of the two smaller bullies. The world empire of the day was Assyria, out in the east. 
Remember Nineveh, the capital city? You read about that in Jonah or the book of Nahum. Nineveh, the capital city of this cruel, barbaric bunch of people called Assyrians. God had those Assyrians come from the east, and when they came down from the north, Syria and Israel no longer had thoughts of invading Judah. They had to protect themselves from the big bad bully, Assyria. Well, one big bad bully knocks out the two little ones, but now you've got a kind of a good news, bad news thing. We don't have two bullies. That's the good news. Bad news is we got one big bad one. And he's going to be a bad one and a cruel one. And God will use the Assyrian as his chastening rod against Israel and Judah, who had become an unfaithful covenant people to the Lord. And you read the rest of chapter 7 and through chapter 8, and the Assyrian will devastate the land. Uh, Assyria will eventually, in 723 B.C., conquer Samaria, the capital of northern Israel, and take the northern population into captivity and, and come down and start to decimate and attack Judah, but God will miraculously hold off uh, the Assyrians from capturing uh, Jerusalem. That will come 150 years later by the Babylonians. But it, uh, Syria will come down and make great, great uh, destruction in the land. So much so that when you get to the last verse of chapter 8, here's the description of the land. God's chosen promised land. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. A day of distress, deep darkness, um, gloom of anguish. Maybe you know somebody, maybe somebody here is in times of distress or anguish, or maybe you feel it's a deep darkness in which you live. Well, there's good news coming for people in darkness. Um, what do you suppose historically, geographically, what would have been the portion of the land of Israel that would have been uh, feeling the full brunt of the Assyrian invasion? Who would have been hit the hardest? The northern area from which the Assyrian was coming. So those northern tribes way up there in, in northern Israel would have been the first and worst areas feeling the invading pagan damage and so you would think um, they would have the deepest darkness the greatest distress and anguish so let's read the next verse which happens to be the next chapter in our English Bible chapter 9 verse 1 but there will be no gloom for her who was past tense in anguish in the former time past he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Where were those two tribes, tribes settled in the land? Way up north. You check your Bible map, and they were the two northern uh, tribes of Israel. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Or you could translate that, Galilee of the Gentiles. Those northern tribes up there, which would later be called Galilee, would be the ones that felt the greatest impact of the Assyrian invasion and would have had injected into the land that Gentile pagan influence much greater 
So that by Jesus' day, you remember how they would mock the Galilean fishermen and, and even Jesus? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, Galilee? Those Gentile mutts are up there and we have nothing to do with you know, that Gentile area up in Galilee? Well, isn't it just like God that where the darkness is deepest, the light shines the brightest? And God says, uh, no more. The land that was in deep darkness, anguish and distress, will now have this glorious light. The glory reminds us the Shekinah glory cloud, this beautiful illumination of the visible presence of God on earth. Glory will be up in Gentile land, Galilee, where there used to be darkness. So much so that he says in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Back to Matthew. Sorry, I should have given you a heads up. We'd be going back there. Matthew chapter 4. Where did Jesus live most of his life? Where did Jesus do most of his ministry during his three and a half years of preaching, teaching, miracles, uh, working with people, traveling? Where was he? Up in Galilee. Why? He would occasionally come down to Jerusalem for festivals and feasts, and certainly that's where his life culminated and ended at the cross in Jerusalem. But notice how Matthew tells us in chapter 4 of Matthew, beginning at verse 12, Now when he heard that John, the baptizing one, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, his hometown, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. That became his home base during his ministry, the, the city of Capernaum on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He began and continued his missionary endeavor, primarily in the area of Galilee, because it seemed God had this rationale, the people who need him most are the people who suffered the most in the darkness for so long. Um, Jesus will come and offer himself to all, whoever will, Jew and Gentile, southern Jew, northern Jew, but he spent a lot of time focusing on the land of darkness. Uh, a challenge to us, perhaps the people we need to be targeting most for gospel ministry are the people in greatest need, the ones that maybe we too easily write off. They're too far gone. They're too deeply entrenched in the darkness of sin. They're an addict. They're a criminal. They're whatever. They're not likely candidate for Christ. But that's not how God sees it. The deepest darkness is the place where the light will shine the brightest. And that was Jesus' philosophy of ministry. I'd like to be like him more and more. And his, his mission was this. Repent. 
You people in darkness, turn from your darkness. Turn to the light. The kingdom of heaven is coming. Here's the king. If you want him and be a part of his kingdom, you need to turn his way. Turn from your sin. Turn to him in faith. Now that mission comes out again in Isaiah. If you'll go back to Isaiah, we're done at Matthew, I promise. Isaiah chapter 9. The light comes to darkness. Verse 3, he increases the joy. There's great rejoicing like harvest time. When the light comes, the Messiah will be that light. And by the way, uh, Isaiah is using the prophetic past tense. He will do this often. He's writing of future events, but they are so certain in the mind of God that he's writing it as if it's history. It's already done. In the mind of God, it is. It's as good as done, even though it hasn't occurred in our human world yet. He can write about it in past tense. And so Messiah coming multiplies, increases joy. Verses uh, 4 and 5, he removes the bondage and oppression of the enemy, not just the Assyrian, but in that future, ultimate, final, eternal deliverance, he will conquer all enemies that we may have, military enemies, political enemies, social enemies, if you have any of those, greatest spiritual enemies, our adversary, the devil. He will conquer all enemies. And one will wonder, Isaiah's readers would wonder, who is this conqueror? Uh, what's what's he going to be like, our, our deliverer? And the answer comes in verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Interesting, perhaps startling to those original readers. Wait a minute. We want a Messiah who's a strong conqueror, not a little kid. But you're telling us he's going to be a born one, a little child, a son? Notice the wonderful words of the Spirit of God. He is a born child. He is a given son. The Messiah will be born, will begin human experience like we all do, through birth, out of a mother's womb. He will begin as a humble baby. But at the same time, the Christ, the Messiah, will also be a given son. If he is given, doesn't that imply he's already in existence somewhere? But now he is given here and now. The, the Messiah will begin a human life at Bethlehem, and his name will be Jesus. The Lord saves, as the angel declared. But we also know the Messiah is the eternal Son given by the loving Father in heaven and given with a mission. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son so that, what? Whoever believes in Him, not perish, but have everlasting life. There's the mission. The mission of Christ, the mission of Christmas is to see people come to believe in the virgin-born child who is the Son of God given from heaven who comes to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10, in preparation for his future mission, which we'll get to in just a moment. A child king, a little one who will be little at one point. He won't stay little, 
but highly unlikely to think of a warrior, a conqueror, a deliverer in terms of a little one. But that's exactly what God prophesied. And then to know him further, you say, well, I'd like to know a little more about our Messiah, Mr. Isaiah. What, what can you tell us about his character? What's he going to be like as a conqueror, as this warrior, as this ruler, as our savior? Well, he uses four descriptive titles that give us an insight into his character. We're told his name, and in the scripture you know name stands for the whole person, right? Their character, their being, what they're like in nature. So Isaiah says, your Messiah will be a wonderful counselor. He'll be a friend by your side who will guide you and lead you if you'll allow him to. And he'll lead you in the good way. And he'll fill your life with wonder because he's wonderful. He's a mighty God. He's not going to be a weak little child. He's not going to be an inadequate deliverer. He's mighty to save. He is almighty God. He's an everlasting father. He won't be impersonal. He won't be uh, some autocratic, some elite who you can't relate to. He's going to be like a father figure to you. And not a father who's here today, gone tomorrow, like a deserting daddy or a deadbeat dad or an abusive father. We know those all too well, sadly. He will be a loving father figure forever. And his promise is, I will never leave you nor forsake you if you'll be one of his. And he's a prince of peace. He's not going to be like a a Stalin who rules his people by killing them and putting fear and intimidation in them. He's not going to be harsh and cruel. He's going to be a ruler of peace. Peace will not only describe his domain, universal, worldwide peace. Peace will describe his heart, his character. He's gentle, lowly, meek, and mild. And those who know him will likewise have that peace of God which passes all understanding. That's what your Messiah will be like. That's his name. That's his character. And here's his mission. And we'll close with this. His mission in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This little child may have small shoulders when he's born. But at some point, verse 6 says, he'll have big broad shoulders. He can handle this. The government will be placed upon him like a mantle passed upon him to rule and reign And what government is that? Well, we're told it's the throne of David in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The millennial kingdom will be the fulfillment of God's covenant to Israel. He will have a kingdom. He will have a a house forever. That's a dynasty when you have throne, house, kingdom. And we don't have time now, but you check it out in Luke chapter 1 when Gabriel gives the birth announcement to Mary. He says, Mary, the one you're going to be born, the one that's going to, you're going to give birth to is the son of the highest. And he will rule on the throne of David and his household and kingdom will be forever. And the fulfillment of this promise and the covenant to David is found in this virgin-born child. His mission is to rule and reign 
and a kingdom that will bring justice, which our world screams for and longs for, can never know until it knows the justice and righteousness of God. But it will finally come. Social justice, economic justice, environmental justice, legal, whatever kind of justice is is desired, it'll all be there under the rule of King Jesus. Justice and righteousness. Only rights will be allowed. Only right people. Righteous through faith in Christ. Only righteousness will rule and reign as the, the sea covers the earth. Isaiah will later tell us. And I'm so glad it concludes by telling us how it will be accomplished. The church will do a lot of great things to bring this to pass. Right? And we'll get Republican government in place that will finally legislate all this to come to pass. Right? Isn't that what we think or hope? We'll finally get rid of the the Muslims in the world, the communists of the world, the atheists. Uh, Yeah, that's what we need to do. No, we need to do our mission work and we let God do what God will do. And it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God won't need my help or yours. He'll take care of this all by himself. He's quite capable. He will make sure this happens to the T. He will fulfill this prophecy as he has fulfilled every other one. And the virgin-born son, the divine sign from heaven, along with the divine Son from heaven in Isaiah chapter 9, give us, in closing, a great motivation to continue trusting this Word. God's Word is true. The sign proves it. The sign confirms it. We don't need more signs. We have the completed Word. Let's trust God. Let's believe the promises. Let's read and love and obey this book another week, and then another week until Jesus comes. And if God has a mission for Christ coming at Christmas, and we know that mission is not just the superficial celebration that all too many do with neglect of the spiritual significance, let us be on mission. Let us seek and save that which is lost. Let us turn people in repentance to get ready for King Jesus' return. He came once to be your Savior. He's coming again. He'll be your sovereign. He'll be your judge if He's not your Savior now. He'll be your loving Prince of Peace, ruling you in the kingdom forever if you'll be a citizen of His kingdom. Come to Christ. May that be our mission, our missionary message this year. Father, help us to be obedient to the Great Commission, to seek people, and seeking them in the deepest darkness in our world, knowing that light, gospel light, penetrates even the darkest corridors of hell. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. So help us to be faithful missionaries, even as Jesus was that faithful missionary coming in obedience to the Father sending him to be born a child, but to become a child king. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long to see you rule and reign on your throne. And we, your servants, to be your servants forever in that kingdom of justice and righteousness. So we pray it in your holy name. Amen.